This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, hello again, everybody. Um, of course, you can't prove that there is a God. Um, it's not like you can take a Bunsen burner and some chemicals and do an experiment, or if there were a blackboard here that we could write some formula on the board and the thing would be demonstrated. Uh, faith is necessary um, to believe in God, and that's actually, the Bible says that that's actually the way that God wants it. He wants people to have a choice, to be able to look at the evidence and to make a decision on um, not only on his existence but also on how they're going to re how people will respond to him if they believe that he does exist and how they will live their lives so so faith is necessary so the next question then is well is it is it blind faith that is required is faith blind arbitrary ignorant or just plain stupid um, well not at all. God has given us all kinds of evidence, and it actually becomes a question of probability then, based on the evidence that we see, what seems to us, and everyone of course has to examine this for themselves, what seems to be the most likely explanation. Um, <coughs> and... <coughs> Excuse me. You could see something about that of that point about evidence coming out from that psalm that we read together. The heavens declare the glory of the God, and the firmament shows His handiwork day to day, utters speech. So it's as if the things around us in this world, whether we look up at the heavens or at the things here on the earth, they are speaking a message. They're saying something. What are they saying? Are they saying to us that it's all a huge accident and that um, nothing means uh, nothing means anything and everything means nothing? Uh, are they or, or, or are they telling us a different message than that? That there is a purpose, that there is a design and a plan uh, behind it all. So. Uh, there is evidence then that points towards God. That is the claim of the Bible, and it's one that everyone has to evaluate for themselves. Let's just take one reference from Romans chapter 1, just very briefly, um, where, where the Apostle Paul makes this point. Uh, verse 20. Well, let's start at verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. So God has communicated then, God has shown something, and he's done that in two ways. One of the ways he's done it is through the Bible, and but the other way is, is actually through nature, and we'll come back to this at the end of the talk. For the invisible things of him, of God, the invisible things about God are clearly seen. Um, from the creation of the world. Even though we can't see him, the invisible things about him, the truth about him, is clearly seen if we stop and look at the evidence that he's given us. And those things are understood by the things that he has made, uh, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul's saying, actually, if you look at the evidence in the world around us, uh, the the evidence of God's eternal power and Godhead, the fact that he is God, is actually very much apparent. 
so much so that Paul says there's actually no excuse for not believing it. Well, um, let's then turn to the question, uh, which is the more likely explanation of the facts at hand? Which provides the better, simpler, cleaner and more predictive account of the various uh, things that we can that we can see about us, the various things that have come to exist in the world, is it more likely that everything is random and the result of blind chance, that there are no absolute standards? Um, is, is the attempt to explain the world purely by natural, by material causes, a satisfying one? Or is it more likely that the God of the Bible exists and has an end in mind? Um, that's the question. So there are lots of arguments for the existence of God, and we're going to focus on two this afternoon. And the, the, these arguments have, given, have been given uh, sort of unfortunate names in a way, because they sound kind of off-putting. So we're going to talk about the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, um, which sort of puts you to sleep just, just, just thinking about those words, isn't it? And it's sort of glazing over um, of, of eyes. But... but the essential point behind those arguments is, is, uh, is quite a simple one, which we'll get to in a second. But there are lots of other arguments that we're not going to explore in any detail. We might just briefly refer to them. But, for example, the moral argument um, that the standards of right and wrong, that sense that people have, um, and, and other attributes such as artistic perception and so forth, that it's more likely that they could be explained by their being um, an absolute standard by those faculties having been created than, uh, than them being purely social uh, constructs. Um, we might think about the laws of nature, and we might, we might think about where do laws come from, and we might wonder whether it's more likely that laws happen by chance or whether laws are, are created and put into place by lawmakers. Um, what reason do we have for believing that the laws of nature will hold tomorrow? Uh, and we're confident that they will, aren't we? Uh, and, and what's the basis of that confidence? We might think about the uniqueness of human beings. We might think about the presence of information. And if you look to look on the hard disk of my computer, you'd find all kinds of information that would tell you various things about me and my family. Uh, but the reason why, if you ask yourself, why is there this information on this hard drive? The answer is because, because Mark or other people in his family put it there. That's why there's information. Uh, there's information in our, in our bodies, isn't there? Um, uh, in, in our DNA, for example. <coughs> Where does information come from? Does it just spontaneously generate itself? Um, or, or is that information um, put there uh, in the beginning um, by, by, by God? Does randomness generate sensible information? And then we might think about purpose and need. There is in human beings this sense of the sense of purpose and a sense of, often a sense of, there must be more to life than this. Why should we feel that way? Uh, could it be that God, it's because God has actually created us to feel a need for him? And, and again, there are Bible passages that seem to suggest that that is the case. Uh, you know, there are various human longings, aren't there? We long for food. Uh, we long to reproduce. You know, the, the, these, the, these 
um, urges that we have, and, and, and they can all be met and satisfied um, by things that exist in the world. But there is also this longing for, for, for something more, this longing for transcendence. Um, and, of course, if you have an entirely materialist, natural account of the world, then you don't have anything that can fit that longing, that need. Whereas if you believe in God, it's perfectly logical uh, why human beings should feel that way, that God has made us with a God-shaped hole, as it were, a need for him. And then, of course, there are arguments about the Bible. Uh, where does the Bible come from and what makes it so unique? Those would be, uh, that would be another line of argument for, for, for believing in God. So there's, so there's a whole host of arguments, but we're just going to focus on two. So first of all, the cosmological argument. And that, that unfortunate word comes from the word cosmos, which is the Greek word for world. And it says that you know, there is a world here, and there's all kinds of interesting things in it. And where did that come from? And, and of course, there is, a, there is an account of biological evolution that is, that is you know, accepted by, by many people and is almost taken as, as standard now. In fact, we would argue that uh, um, that, 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 uh, that case is very much only a theory and it's been mistaken as being something that's proved. And in fact, there's, there is a lot of evidence for, for the special creation of the Bible. But, but even if you were to accept that account of biological evolution, uh, that only pushes the question one, one stage further back. You know, so if you believe that we came from apes and then we go back and back and back to you know, the primeval soup, then where did the soup come from? And where did the things come from that banged? You know, in the Big Bang, what banged? Um, where did... Uh, space and time come from? Where did everything uh, c come from? There is a universe to put things in. And even if we think we can explain the things, which is of itself a big question, where did... Um, w w you can regress back and back. What caused that? What caused that? What caused that? But ultimately, um, you get to a point... You just keep pushing the question back. Why is there a universe at all? Why is there... Um, a world. So evolution doesn't begin to explain why there should be matter in the first place or a universe to put um, any of it in, a universe in which things might even evolve. So um, you never get to the original step. You just keep pushing the question back, the sufficient reason for the universe. So the cosmological argument says that in, in order to create the world, you need to have something outside the world which could have set it in motion in the beginning, a sufficient reason. So there is, you know, there's a glass of water here on the desk, and the reason why there is a glass of water is because uh, there are certain chemical properties of glass and certain chemical properties of water. So that's a material explanation of why, why there is a glass of water here. Um, that, that, would be the, that would be the material cause. But then we could say, well, where, where, did, the, you know, where did the hydrogen and the oxygen and, and whatever glass is made of, where did all that come from? And we could keep going back like that. But there is a material cause, isn't there, as to why there, is, why there can be a glass of water. Um, but there's, there's also an efficient cause uh, in that there was a factory somewhere which, uh, which had a mould or, or whatever that actually made 
the glass of water. There was an efficient cause for it, but there's also, um, there's also a final cause, a purpose or a rationale for there being a glass of water here, and that's because someone thought I might have a cough or, or get dry while I'm talking, and so someone chose to put a glass of water here. There's a purpose behind it, isn't there? The whole scientific, the glass of water is not here, does not exist at all, and is not actually here right now on this desk for, for, for no reason or for, 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 for any, any kind of random explanation. There is a cause for it. Every effect has a cause. The universe is the most, ama- and, and all the things in it, is the most amazing cause, uh, sorry, the most amazing effect that there could, could be, isn't it? What cause would have produced that effect? And the answer that believers give is that you can't explain that effect by anything within the universe itself. You need something outside of space and time, outside the universe, to bring it uh, into being. Julie Andrews. No, no, that was a lot of words, wasn't it? But Julie Andrews um, uh, put it very simply when she said, uh, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. You know the phrase, don't you? Um, from, from, from the sound of music. But it's, it's, it's absolutely right. It's, it's logical and it's simple, isn't it? The whole scientific enterprise is based on the assumption that effects have causes. And that's what we need in order to explain the universe. We need a cause outside itself in order to explain it. Things do not simply pop into and out of existence. Science is about seeking causal explanations and, um, and it's about saying that there must be something outside the system something supernatural beyond nature in order to bring nature into being. And then we can ask, you know, what sort of thing might that be? And then when we start to explore that, that might get us nearer to believing in the kind of God that the Bible uh, describes to us. (coughs) Now, there are various counter-arguments to this. So this essential idea that an effect, the universe, must have a cause outside of itself and that that cause is probably God. There are various counter-arguments to that. So some people, you know, in the past people used to argue, well, if the universe were an eternal thing, then it wouldn't need a cause because it would just always exist. But now I think there's hardly any scientist who believe that to be the case. That's, you know, that's not now considered to be a credible scientific view of an eternal universe. Uh, The scientists seem to have satisfied themselves that the universe did have a beginning and so then you need to have an explanation as to how it could have begun of course you could say well could the cause not be the cause doesn't have to be a personal god does it of the type described in the bible couldn't it just be couldn't it just be a force of some kind well if you if you think about that if you think of this force just existing if if the force made it inevitable that the universe should pop into existence then the universe would have popped into existence, or banged, um, infinitely long ago. Uh, and if that were the case, then it would have run out of energy infinitely long ago, and we wouldn't be here to have this conversation. Uh, so, 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 so that explanation um, isn't as, as, as satisfying as it initially appears. Um, 
Similarly, people talk about, well, there could be an infinite number of universes, uh, but again, there's no evidence for that uh, whatsoever, and there's still no explanation of why the infinite number of universes should have uh, come about in the first place. So effectively, we've taken the problem of one universe that for which we need a cause, and we've made it infinitely bigger by, create, by, by positing that there should be an infinite number of universes. Let's then uh, move on to, uh, well, uh, sorry, so just to, just to conclude that, and this is just, uh, I use this because I'm getting, falling over my papers here. Um, uh, some, someone put it like this, an unexplainable trans transcendent being is far easier to accept than an unexplainable material universe. So some people say, you know, when you, when you talk about things like this, some people say, well, what caused God, don't they? Um, but that, that question completely misses the point, because the point is that we need something outside the system uh, that is eternal and all-powerful, that is supernatural, in order to create the natural universe. So, and since God is, by definition, eternal and uncaused, then that's exactly what we need. So to ask what caused God is, is kind of a contradiction in terms, because if God exists at all in the form that the Bible describes, then he would, by definition, be uncaused. So an unexplainable transcendent being is far easier to accept than an unexplainable material universe. Because if... If, if all you've got is the material universe, then you need a material explanation for it, which there doesn't seem to be. Um, whereas the other way around, uh, things are much easier, because that's exactly what you'd expect to find if there were a transcendent being. Now, what kind of God does that argument argue for? Well, um, you, you know, it doesn't, that, that sort of cosmological argument doesn't get you all the way to the God of Abraham. We've posited that there is a need for a supernatural God who is probably more than a, a, an always existing force, but it doesn't get us all the way, as I say, to the God of the Bible. That brings us then to the second of the arguments that we're going to explore, the teleological argument. Now, that word uh, another mouthful comes from the Greek word telos, telos which, is, uh, which means the end. Um, and it argues that the world appears to have come about with a particular end in view. Telos, end. The world seems to have come about with a particular end in view, i.e. not to have developed randomly and in some haphazard way, uh, 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 but, but for a particular end and purpose. In other words, it appears to be designed rather than random. Now, we know the difference between good design and bad design, don't we? Uh, you do sometimes wonder about that, I suppose, with, with some kinds of modern art. But, uh, um, you know, there's a difference between a junkyard, isn't there? where you know, old scrap vehicles have just been dumped randomly and, 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 and something of intricacy and beauty that has been designed. We know the difference between a great painting and you know, the, <coughs> uh, the, uh, the, 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 the scribbles of my four-year-old. There's a difference between those, isn't there? A difference of skill and practice um, and talent, uh, perhaps. So, and, and the same... What this argument does is to apply the same thing to the universe. 
If we see around us something of incredible complexity and beauty and design, then that would suggest that there would be a designer. That, you know, you can't just get a pile of paints and throw them and, and, and that, I mean, I know there have been Jackson Pollock and so on, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a difference between, that's a different kind of art, isn't it? Um, what, what, what you see is something in the world is something of, of incredible beauty and design, which speaks of a purpose and it speaks of a great designer. And that's what this argument argues then. And in fact, the evidence for design in the universe has become stronger and stronger over the last few years. And that's as uh, scientists have focused more on these cosmological questions of how did the universe come into being, and they've explored what conditions would need to exist uh, for example, in the Big Bang, if we accept that as the, or if we take that as a model for the beginning, um, what sort of conditions would have to exist in order for the galaxies and the planets to form and in order for life to be possible? And they've spoken about the Goldilocks uh, universe, whereby things appear to be so accurately fine-tuned so that life should be possible, life of the kind that we experience. And the probability of uh, those various constants, that scientific constants that define the universe being exactly the way they are so that life can exist seems to be infinitesimally small. <coughs> now, I'm not a scientist. Um, you know, I'm just someone who's, you know, who's obviously read to some extent about these questions and, and tried to you know, try to think about them. And, and, and um, so I, I, I want to quote to you rather than um, on, on some of these issues. So here's one. And these are quotes from, you know, leading physicists and cosmologists. Um, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was, constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. And yet here we are, despite the tremendous improbability of it. And um, again, there's the argument that, coming now into how things have developed in the universe, there's the argument that in order for things to develop, even if you accepted the, you know, again, the, the accounts of evolution and so on, there simply isn't enough time for all those probabilities to work out and for life to exist in its current form. Similarly, these are, these are a couple of quotes now from Stephen Hawking. Uh, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Or again, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Uh, Fascinating quote, that, isn't it? Um, and uh, focusing then, those quotes focusing on how many things have to be just so in order for the universe to exist at all. Um, and, you know, perhaps just to 
just to give one, one, one more quote uh, along those lines, just to take one of those constants as an, as an illustration. An alteration in, say, the strength of the gravitational force by a, a mere one part in 10 to the 40 would be sufficient to throw out this numerical coincidence. In such a world, all stars would then be either blue giants or red dwarfs. Stars like the sun would not exist nor, one might argue, would any form of life that depends on solar-type stars for its uh, sustenance. And that, you know, that 10 to the 40 is, um, you know, that's, that's um, 1 followed by 40 zeros. Um, or in other words, 1 in 10,000 billion, 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 billion. Uh, and that's just one constant... And uh, this is the point about the probability. It's not the probability of one of these things being just so. It's the probability of one of those things times by the equally unlikely probability of another thing times another thing times another thing. And the thing is just becoming more and more and more improbable with every new constant that is, that is discussed. And that, again, is just to bring this kind of universe into being before we start exploring how the individual things on our planet for example, might have come to be. So uh, another word for this is the, uh, is the anthropic principle that the universe seems to have been designed precisely so that uh, beings like us might exist, which can, seem to, which can seem to be a very anthropocentric or even sort of egotistical, a self-centered thing to say, can't it? But then when you think that you know, there are more connections in the human brain than there are uh, stars in the, in, in, in the galaxies, as far as we're aware, uh, then uh, actually... Human beings are quite special, which is exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says that, that, that we are. Um, we were the last thing that God created, and God had a very special purpose for us. And the, this evidence of science seems to back up this, this very point. Again, I just want to come back to this idea. So there is design, then, but isn't the de couldn't the design just be the result of an impersonal force? Well, I think that... I think you know, with, with an impersonal force bringing about the world, would we expect to find beauty and intricacy in the world from such a force? Probably not. Would an impersonal force explain personhood, human personhood? Or is it more likely that a being that itself had personhood, a supernatural being with personhood, would bring about a world in which personhood exists in which there are persons. Um, would an impersonal force be a sufficient explanation for uh, the origin of life and reproduction? Um, only a personal, uh, atemporal cause can create a universe, it would seem, where space and time begin and where you find the sorts of things that we find in the world around us. So it comes then down to a question of probability. There's always another explanation. You know, it, it might be theoretically possible. We might think that all these extremely unlikely probabilities did all just happen at once. But uh, one philosopher and theologian called Alvin Plotinger came up with an, an, an analogy for this. Imagine we're in the Wild West and we're all playing cards 
and I'm the dealer, and I deal out 20 successive hands in which, you know, to all of us, obviously there wouldn't be enough cards for all of us, but let's just imagine there were, and, and I dealt myself four aces 20 times in a row in 20 successive deals. Now, well, you'd all draw your guns and get ready to shoot me, wouldn't you, for, for, for being a cheat, because it's just impossible that that would happen. Uh, well, suppose I then put my finger up and say, oh, actually, though, uh, there's actually an infinite number of universes where card games just like this are being played, and we just happen to be in the one of the infinite universes where I deal 20 successive hands of aces. Are you going to be impressed by that? No, you're still going to shoot me, aren't you? Um, because, because we know that in this universe it doesn't happen. Uh, and, and that's exactly the point. We're talking about something that is that is massively more unlikely than that I should deal uh, 20 successive four-ace hands. Well, let's, um, we, we can move on to that then from, to, into making deductions from, from, from design. Uh, uh, if we can accept the idea that there must be a designer for such a design as this to exist then we might think, what kind of designer would that be? One who was infinitely creative, um, with a, 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 an amazingly developed aesthetic sense, one with purpose, one who is lavish and extravagant in the best of senses, one who is tolerant of destruction but is not wanton. And, and so we could go on. And when we went on to consider ourselves and the potential that human beings have that separates us from the rest of the world around us, we might draw more conclusions from that um, about what God must be like. <coughs> Let's just go uh, 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 briefly to Psalm 19, and then we'll wrap things up. So what we've done is to think of some aspects of uh, the things in the world, on earth in particular, and of the universe which contains them, and said what kind of conclusions would we ex or expectations might, might we have about how such a world could have come about, and who or what, and we've suggested that it's more likely that it would be a who, would have, would have brought this into being, that we need this external supernatural cause um, with personhood uh, to put information and laws into the world. Uh, and we've, we've, we've hopefully seen that there's some logic to that just from the starting point of looking at the world around us and seeing the evidence that there is. But, but that's not enough on its own. That only gets us halfway there. And to get us the rest of the way in learning about this God, we need his word, the Bible. And that comes out in Psalm 19. So the first half of the psalm, verses 1 to, uh, to 6, is all about nature. It's all about the message that the creation or the world around us says about God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, uttering that speech and praise to him. Uh, but then in verse 7, the, the tone changes and it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And now we get into, now we get into moral education, don't we? Now we get into character. And in order to learn about that, 
we need something more than just standing outside and looking up at the stars or looking around at the trees and saying, where might the tree have come from? Um, we actually need to open our Bibles. So God is, God is speaking to us in both of these two ways. The creation tells us about God, but when we open his word, the Bible, the law of the Lord, we're no longer just learning about God as an all-powerful creator. We're learning about the Lord. And you notice how the name for God changes in verse 7. And then we have the Lord or Yahweh, verse 7, the Lord, the Lord, verse 8, the Lord, the Lord, verse 9, the Lord, the Lord. Um, and I think, it's, uh, I think it's seven times in the rest of the psalm, God's special covenant name, which, which evokes his moral character. Not just his creative power, but now his moral character, what sort of a God he is, is brought out. And to learn about that... That's why he's given us the Bible to complete the message. Now then, let's, let's conclude by, uh, so, so, so we've suggested that it makes sense to, uh, to, to argue that there must be this external supernatural cause who, who brought about, uh, the, uh, who is the great designer and brought this world about. I'd like to just, I'd like to just flip that on its head and say, Suppose, suppose then we accept the Bible's explanation that there is such a God, that the God of the Bible exists. What kind of a world would we expect to live in if that were so? If the God of, of the Bible exists, we would expect to find a world of order and consistency with set laws and patterns. Do we find that? Yeah, that's what we find, isn't it? We'd expect to find a world of astonishing beauty, vastness and complexity. Do we find that? Yes, we do. We'd expect there to be fine-tuning uh, so that the world would be suited for life. And yes, we find that. We'd expect to find a home where God's creatures, and in particular man, men and women, could exist. And we do find that. We'd expect to find a world containing free agents, humans, with tremendous capability, intellectual, um, uh, uh, creative, relational, spiritual. Yes, we find that. We'd expect there to be a sense of morality and responsibility amongst those humans. We find that too. We'd expect to find the demise of, of, of harmony and society when God is rejected. We find that too. We'd expect to find humans with a massive conundrum at their core. They're like the animals and yet they have the potential for so much more. Um, yes, that's what we find as well. And we could go... We, we could go on like this. We'd expect to find humans with an inability to find ultimate satisfaction in the material, in the purely material. Because if the God of the Bible exists, that's telling us that there is more than the material about us. And that's what we find, isn't it? It's exactly what we find. The theory, or the, 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 the hypothesis that the God of the Bible exists drives the data, it fits the facts of what we find when we look around at the universe. We'd expect to find the possibility of deeply fulfilling re relationships with others and with God. And we do find that, don't we? And God has blessed us with that possibility. We'd expect there to be a sense that there is a plan, a future, a purpose and a meaning. And that is exactly what we find by contrast if we start with the assumption that nature is all that there is and that mutation and natural selection are the whole show that the universe is as c.s lewis put it a senseless contortion upon the face of idiotic matter 
then we'd expect to find none of those things. No order, no beauty, no scale, no purpose, no morality, no music, no art, no religion, no society, no humans, no creatures, no life, no planets, no universe, nothing. It's possible that this astonishing something of which we're a part is really a nothing, that it has no meaning and that it's going nowhere other than a sticky end when the sun finally runs out of energy, that it's just a random fluctuation in infinity. It's possible to believe that uh, this great nothing came from nothing, but it seems hard to imagine a less convincing explanation. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, Go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Christadelphians.org.uk